Well, good morning, White Oak. It is really good to be here. It's good to be back. Uh, we've been gone for a couple weeks, and so it's really nice to be able to share with you. I'm not really sure what the camp's pastor is. That's what it said up there on the screen. I thought that I left student ministry behind, but I think Kyle's trying to get me back in uh, by putting that up there. But uh, my name is Kevin. I am the campus pastor here at Coleraine. And uh, so this month, we've been having a lot of fun with our series, My Big Fat Mouth. And uh, we had both Chris and Rick share and uh, both of them kind of talked about the fact that their mouths get them in trouble from time to time. But I have been, uh, I've been informed by my wife that I wear the crown for a uh, big fat mouth. And uh, she's let me know that on many occasions. But, uh, but my mouth gets me into trouble. And, uh, and really, it kind of comes into two categories, all right? So the first problem is, is that I say exactly what I'm thinking. And I call that no filter. Anybody have the uh, no filter problem where you just, you know what I mean, you just say stuff? My second problem, and my, this is the one that my wife gets on me the most about, is that uh, I think that I'm funnier than I really am. All right, And so I say things that I think will be funny, but then she tells me that it was mean or hurtful or rude, all right? And I call that the jerk, okay? So, um, so it's either that I have no filter or that I'm just a jerk. And, uh, you know, kind of to compound on that, uh, I was working here about a week or two, and uh, we were in a meeting, and I made Aaron Pfizer cry uh, really early on here, and uh, it was all because of my big fat mouth. Are we still friends? Okay, I think that uh, we've learned each other a little bit, and, uh, and now we know. But, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's one of those things that um, it's not just me, though, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of the fact that it's not just me that struggles sometimes with the words that come out of my, our, the words that come out of my mouth, easy for me to say. Um, but I think that it's something that we all struggle with. I, I think that it is something that, um, you know, everyone kind of has a hard time with. So much so that the proof text that we've been kind of using here is in James chapter 3. And James kind of goes into some really good teaching about the words we say, about the tongue. And so I just want to look at those really quick. James chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. James says this, he says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He goes on to say, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So we take a look at what James says here. He's like, hey, look... We, as human beings, have been taming creatures. We've been doing all these amazing things. He goes, we've got all these accomplishments. He said, you know what we can't do? We cannot get control of our mouths, our tongues, the things that we say. He said, it's an area that we just are unsuccessful in. He goes on to say, he says, you know, he says, out of our mouths, we sing worship songs. We praise God. We say these beautiful things. He says, and then out of our mouths come cursing and come this evil And he says, that's not what God intended. At the end of the day, basically, James is saying, he goes, look, we all struggle with what comes out of our mouth. We all have a hard time with what it is that we say. And that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, just because that we all struggle with it doesn't mean that we just give up and we're just like, you know what? There's no use. We can't do better. God calls us to be better with what we say. 
And so James reminds us that, uh, that it's going to be a struggle. So in this series, we've been focused on some things that we shouldn't say. That's kind of been the, the, the big idea behind this, my big fat mouth. Things that come out of our mouth that are dangerous and defeating and impure and unproductive and, and not focused on what God wants for our lives. We heard Rick talk about the unwholesome or ungodly things that, that kind of come out of our mouth and how dangerous those things are. Last week, Chris talked about the dangers of the comparisons that come out of our mouth, whether it's comparing ourselves to other people because we think that we're better than them or comparing ourselves to other people because we think that they got things that we don't have. But it's dangerous when we start talking about these comparisons and God says we shouldn't do that. Well, today we want to focus on a dangerous word that comes out of our mouth. And it's the word can't. And now I want to make a preface, okay, for this. And when, we, when we're going to talk about the word can't, we're going to be a little bit more specific with what it is that we're talking about. Some of you are overscheduled. Uh, you got too much on your plate. And so sometimes somebody might call you and invite you to do something. Somebody might um, request your presence somewhere. And uh, you look at your schedule and you're just like, you know what? I can't make that. I just can't squeeze that in. I can't make it to this birthday party or I can't do that trip because I got something else going on. Uh, I'm not talking about you uh, and your scheduling conflicts and, and, and how you prioritize your life. There are times where we just can't do something because we have some other things going on. And sometimes some of us need to be able to say no. Uh, we're not talking about that specifically when we're talking about the word can't. But what we are talking about, what we are going to focus on is that there are things that God calls us to do in our life, right? Things that God wants us to do, some things that, that maybe we feel called to do, and we feel an inability to do these things. Could be fear, could be a lot of different things, but, but we simply do not have the belief or the courage to be able to do them. And we just say, you know what? I can't. And, uh, and so today we're going to focus on how it is that we get beyond that, how it is that we can get to a different place with that. You know, when we talk about the word, uh, we're talking about this defeated attitude with follows by the unbelief that you can accomplish something or achieve something that God has called you to do. A few weeks ago, uh, I stood on the stage and we were preaching and we talked about that we were for building dreams. That, that here at White Oak, we are for building dreams and that we believe that God is putting a dream in each and every one of our hearts, something that he wants us to accomplish, maybe something that only we can do. One of the things that stands in the way of those dreams is the word can't. It's the inability to act on what God's called you to do. It's the disbelief that you can actually accomplish what it is that God's put on your heart. And so this word can't stands in our way, right? God has called us to do something, whether it's very general, and we're going to talk about that, some of the general things, some of the universal things that God has called us all to do. But I believe that God's called us to some specific things too. That, that things that he's put on my heart that maybe he hasn't put on your heart that he wants me to do and maybe it's something that, that only I can do. I don't know. And so we're going to talk about how sometimes we get fixed on this idea that we cannot do some of these things. One of the general things that God calls us all to is this idea that we're supposed to share the good news of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is with other people. And there's a phrase found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 that I love. 
It says this, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. It's up here on the screen, and, and I just love this because what Peter is saying, he's like, hey, I want you to always be ready. He says, I, always, I want you to be, always be ready to, to tell anybody who asks you about this hope that you have in your life. He's saying that people are going to see your life, they're going to see your actions, and they're going to want to know where this hope comes from. And so he tells people, he says, be ready to give an answer. Now, a lot of times when we're challenged with this idea of sharing where our hope comes from or sharing about Jesus, the first thing that comes to mind is the word, the phrase, can't. You know what? I I just can't do that. That's not me. I'm not comfortable with doing that. You know, that's for somebody else to do. A few weeks ago, um, Kate and I, along with my two oldest girls, Mackenzie, who's going to be 15 this week, and Olivia, who's 13, we traveled to Guatemala for a mission trip, and we went with some friends back in Bright. This was a trip that we had planned uh, for a long time ago. We were actually supposed to go to Haiti first, but we couldn't get into the country because of some political things that are going on. So we ended up in Guatemala a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and the main thing that we were doing while we were in Guatemala was that we were going to be doing some evangelism with the local church that was there near Guatemala City. And so we were going to be working with this local church. We also had a group that came in from Honduras that was joining us. And so in the evenings, we would do these kind of seminars where we were learning about evangelism and discipleship. And then during the day, we would go out and we would kind of practice this uh, the models and, and the things that we were learning. Antonio was a pastor from Honduras, and he came up and he kind of led everything that we were going through. And, uh, and Antonio said that in Honduras and in Guatemala, along with everywhere else that he had been, in America and everywhere else, that, that there was this kind of, this idea that was prevalent that it was no longer um, effective to go door-to-door sharing the good news with people, that you just can't go knocking on doors and like go house to house and, and that that's just, you know, he, it was kind of frowned upon. And, but he felt like that God was putting it on his heart that this is what he was called to do. And so he just kept, you know, I mean, hearing people basically say, you can't do that. You can't do that anymore. Well, we, we talked about what that looks like and how you do that, and, and he just felt like that God was calling him to do it, and so he would train us and teach us about how we were going to go through the streets of Guatemala sharing the good news. And so we did that. We, uh, during the day, we would divide up into groups, and we would just go door to door, and you know what? It worked. Not all the time, but we had people who wanted us to pray for them. We had people who wanted to come back and join us at church that night. We had people who, uh, who wanted to find out more about salvation and following Jesus. And so uh, we were seeing what we would consider to be success in that. We also had some slam doors. We had some people who weren't interested in talking to us. But it was really encouraging for, for our people, uh, our team, to be able to, to see kind of God moving in that way. In a way where Antonio would say that, you know, so many people had told him that he couldn't do something that can't work and that he was just going to be faithful and do what God was calling him to do. One of the really cool things that Antonio taught us was that, uh, you know, when you talk about having a church program or you talk about, you know, evangelism or you talk about sharing the gospel with people, the way that we typically measure success is by the results. 
Did, did somebody accept Jesus? Did somebody, you know what I mean, uh, come to church? Did, you know what I mean? Like, what was the result? It's got to be real and it's got to be tangible. But, uh, but Antonio challenged us to, uh, to this idea that our success is found in our obedience. God calls us to share the gospel with people. And so we're successful simply by doing what it is that God called us to do. God owns the success. God owns the numbers. God is in charge of all that other stuff. We're successful simply by doing what it is that God asked us to do. And, uh, and so he said our success is measured in our obedience. And I just found that really, really eye-opening. Because in a world of I can't, one of the reasons that we might say I can't is because we're just not seeing the results that we think that we should see. And God doesn't call us to those kind of results. He calls us to just to be obedient, to do what it is that he's asked us to do. And so one of the things that we kind of took away from that as our team coming back to America was simply to be more uh, willing to take risks, be more willing to be out there, put ourselves out there, be more willing to try things that maybe people say cannot be done because it's better than doing nothing. And so our team was really encouraged, our team was really challenged to just to do more, right? And so as we consider what it is that we're called to do, sharing our faith is an example of a general call. Uh, it's for everyone. We all understand that we're all called to do that, and some of us are, are better at following that than others. Um, we also have a specific call. And this is a thing that we're called to do uh, that is very specific. Paul describes the body in the Bible, as, or the church in the Bible, as a body made up of all these different parts. Hands and ears and eyes and mouths. And, uh, and every part of the body has a different job, something that it was created to do. And I believe that for a lot of us, we kind of recognize what it is that, you know, what part we play, uh, where our gifts are, where our talents are, where maybe God is pushing us, where God is leading us. Uh, Our problem is that, that we know that we're a hand, or we know that we're an eye, or we know that we're an ear. We're just unwilling to do the work of the hand, or the work of the ear, or the work of the eye. We don't believe that we're qualified. We don't believe that we're good enough. We don't believe that we can do what it is that God wants us to do. We want to take a look at a gentleman in the Old Testament who had this I can't attitude. And I think you'll be familiar with him. For the first first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived in a place of strength. As a member of Pharaoh's household, he had social prestige and wealth and his youthful strength. There was a time when uh, he noticed some of his uh, people from his birth uh, you know, heritage, the Israelites, being mistreated, being oppressed. And he used his strength to kind of exact vigilante justice on the oppressors of Egyptian guards who were, uh, who were mistreating the Israelites. This was not God's plan for deliverance for the Israelites And so Moses found himself on the run. And he spent his next 40 years living uh, in the pastures of a place called Midian, where he just basically lived in obscurity. Until God came and uh, called him in a burning bush. And what God called him to do was to come and to free his people, right? He says, Behold, the cry of the people of 
Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, this is God speaking, come and I will send you to Pharaoh, and you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this call that God put on Moses, it scared him. And, uh, and he was terrified. And, and for, for lack of better words, basically Moses looked at God and he said, I can't. I can't do it. I can't go. And so he gave uh, some objections, and we're going to take a look at four of them. Uh, first objection that Moses gave, he says, you know what? I'm nobody, God. He's like, look, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Look, Moses is like, any fame or social credibility that I once had is gone. He says, in fact, I'm a shepherd, and anybody who knows anything about shepherds knows that the Egyptians despise shepherds. Moses' objection is like, look, hey, I'm nobody. Nobody's going to listen to me. Nobody cares what I have to say. I don't have any credentials. He says, I'm not anyone. God says, objection overruled. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I will be with you. God basically says, this call is not based on your credibility, but on my credibility. This call has nothing to do with who you are, but it has everything to do with who I am. And I think that's something that we lose sight on very often. Objection two. Moses says, they aren't going to believe me, God. In Exodus chapter four, verse one, he says, but behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Basically, Moses looks at God and says, they're going to think I'm crazy. He says, look, I believe you because I can see you and I can hear you, and this whole thing's amazing. He says, but I'm going to go to them and tell them that God spoke to me, and they're going to laugh at me. They're not going to believe what I believe because they're not able to see what I see. God says, objection overruled. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 5, he said, That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. His point is that uh, I don't want them to be impressed with who you are. I want them to be impressed with who I am. And he says this. He says, I will be with you. The same power that I demonstrate to you in secret, I'm going to demonstrate to them in public. And, And this is a scary thing for us. God promises that he's going to be with us. God is more than capable of showing up, but sometimes we have to step out on faith and do the thing that God's called us to do, trusting and believing that God's going to be there like he said he would. Right? Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that God's going to show up? Do you believe that God's going to fulfill the promise that he has made to you? And sometimes we've got to move first. We don't see it. We don't know if it's going to be there. We doubt sometimes that he's going to show up and we've got to believe that he's going to be there. And that's where Moses was. God's saying, trust me. I've got you. Objection number three. He says, I'm not gifted to do this, God. And this is the one that I feel like that so many of us use, right? This is the one that I hear over and over and over again. He says this in Exodus chapter four, verse 10. Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have been speaking to your servant, 
but I am slow of speech and tongue. He says, look, I've been to Pharaoh's court. I know what it's going to take to persuade him, and I don't have it. He says, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not the right guy. I am not qualified to do this. And God says, objection overruled. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says, God says this to him. He says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should speak. In 18 years of student ministry, when we would talk to students about evangelism, and I think it goes for adults as well. I don't really think that there's a big divider there. But if I would talk about sharing your faith with somebody, the number one reason that people would give for not talking to other people about who Jesus is is that they don't know enough. I don't know enough. I don't know what to say. I don't have the right words. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know where everything's found. I can't do it because I'm not qualified. And we use that as an excuse over and over and over again. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I can't. When God the whole time is saying, you can. He says, look, who made your mouth? <laughs> who, who allows you to speak? Who gives you the breath that's in your lungs? He says, I do. And so when I call you to do something, you better believe that you can do it. When the whole world, including ourselves, are telling us that we can't, God is screaming at the top of his lungs that we can Whose voice are we listening to? Objection number four. And this is Moses' like last ditch effort. This is just his final kind of, I would call this like his toddler tantrum. He says, don't make me do this, God. Oh my Lord, Moses says, please send someone else. It's, I, I picture a toddler because, I, you know, if you've ever raised a young person, um, they have this ability that when they don't want to go somewhere, any of you have the thing where your kids just like drop to the floor and then now it's almost impossible to get them to where you need to get them. They've made themselves almost unmovable. I don't know what it is. It's like a special superpower. But when you go to try to move them, it's like they're stuck there. Uh, they got the ability to grab onto almost anything as you're like taking them by. It could be like the, the, the leg on a table or it could be like the door frame. Anybody ever tried to pull your kid into another room and they're clinging onto the trim on the edge of the door? Or is that just me? And that's kind of what Moses is doing right here. He, he's just holding on for dear life and he's like, anybody but me, God. Send somebody else. How many of us that's been our attitude? When we feel like that there's something that needs to be done, we see something that we know God would be for, we know that God wants this done, we know that it's something important, and we think to ourselves, anybody but me. Send somebody else. God, seriously, there's got to be a better way. And God just says, enough. Objection overruled. He says, I have... Uh, a purpose in choosing you for this call, right? God chose Moses specifically to do this. God wanted Moses for this job. He says, quit leaning on your own understanding. He says, quit, quit believing the lies. He says, and trust me. He says, but it's because you have such little faith, he says, I'm going to send your brother Aaron to be with you. He says, I will be your mouth 
and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. Now get moving. Do you ever feel underqualified for what God is calling you to do? Join the club. Kingdom work is supernatural work. No matter what you're calling, if it doesn't require real faith, if it doesn't require a desperate uh, dependence on God, it's probably not from God, and it's probably not worth doing. Anything that we do for God is going to take faith, it's going to take courage, and it's going to be take ignoring all the things that are telling us that we can't and believing the truth that with God's help, we can. When I was in high school... I ran track and cross country, and uh, so in track, uh, I did the high jump, and I did the 3,200, which is like the two-mile. And, uh, and I loved high jumping. Uh, the two-mile was okay. It's a pretty long distance to run, and uh, it's not really common that somebody would do both of these events, but I did. And so in my senior year, uh, as we were getting close towards the end of the season, we would get to this portion of the season where we would start doing these really big um, invitationals. And so I was really excited about this first invitational, a chance where I thought that I could win the high jump and, you know what I mean, just be successful. Um, I don't know how much you know about high jump, but at each height, you get three opportunities to clear the bar. And uh, they have an opening height, which is kind of, you know, at the place where I was in my career, this was like just warm up, really. But on this night, for whatever reason, I missed all three attempts at the opening height. And I was really crushed. Just, you know, um, uh, I'd waited, you know, so long, so much time and effort and focus had gone into this night, and now it's over. And I remember walking out into the middle of the, you know, the football field there that's in the middle of the track, and uh, my coach was there, and he said, what happened? And I was like, man, I blew it. I, I'm done, you know? And, uh, and I'll never forget, he looks at me, and he says, hey, you still have your race to run. That was the first thing that happened. And I wasn't even thinking about that, but he was like focused on that. He was like, hey, don't forget, you still got this race coming up. And I could have cared less about the race at this point. I I was just over it. High jumps at the very beginning of the night, 3,200 is one of the very last things that happens at the night. And it just, you know, so it's a long night. And uh, so I got a long time to just sit and like stew about how miserable I am. And so... Uh, I find myself in the middle of this race, and uh, it's about three-quarters of the way done. I got, you know, maybe two or three laps left, and I'm in second place, which, given everything that's happened, I was really happy about. I was like, you know what? This is great. I'm going to finish second. This will be at least a little bit better than, you know, what happened, and this will make the night not a total failure. So I come around, and I got two laps to go, and my best friend, Patrick Lockwood, is down on the sideline as I come around uh, the finish line with two laps to go, and he's screaming at me, and he's, you know what I mean, that I can catch this guy in front of me. Well, I'm in second place, and the person that's in first place is like half the track in front of me. And I'm just like, whatever, this is, like, <laughs> this is not happening, all right? But... He was encouraging, and so I just pick up my pace just a little bit to seem like I'm giving effort, but I'm not really. And uh, so now I come around, and I've got one uh, lap to go, and I've made up a marginal amount of distance on this kid, but not very much at all. And my best friend Patrick is still screaming at me. He says, you can catch this guy. You can catch this guy. And I'm like, you're crazy. And uh, so, but I start, to, I start to run faster because I didn't want to let my friend down. 
And so I speed up a little bit, and now, uh, if you know anything about track, I've ran 100 meters, I've ran the turn, my best friend has ran completely across the track, I think he's ran farther than me, and he's definitely ran faster than me, and he meets me at the turn, and he's screaming, he's down on his hands and knees, and he's begging me to catch this kid that's in front of me, and I don't really know why, but something just snapped in me, and so with 300 meters to go, I just put it all out there, and I just start running as fast as I can after already running a mile and three quarters. Um, And so I just, uh, I put it all out there, and with about 100 meters to go, I pass this kid, and I finish, and I win, and there's a picture of me in the newspaper with my hands raised up high and all this stuff, and it was like this kind of iconic moment for me. But I'll tell you this, okay? What I needed was somebody in my life to tell me that I can Forever, I'd just been telling myself that I can't. I went on to win a lot more races that senior year, become really successful in the 3200, and it was because of this moment somebody told me that I, that I trusted and that I loved and that I appreciated, told me that I can. And I just needed to hear that, and I needed to believe it, and, and so something happened that night. Uh, now, I, I learned later that, um, you know, this is just about me. I'm so selfish. Like, I was only worried about me and what I did. But Patrick was worried about the team. And the team needed me to beat this kid for us to have a chance to win this invitational as a team. I wasn't focused on the team. I was only focused on me and what, what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be successful in the high jump. But Anyway, you know, I, I tell that story because I just want you to know that, uh, that God is telling you, telling all of us, he's telling Moses in this instant, you can, you can do this. The thing that I've called you to do, the thing that I want for you, the dream that I've put on your heart, you can do this. Everybody around us and, and maybe ourselves, we're telling us that we can't. And God is standing up and telling you that you can and we got to start paying attention to the God that's telling us this. If you're going to be uh, serving communion today, I want you to go ahead and make your way to the back. And as we think about this attitude that we need to have, as we think about this ability to say, you know what, I can do this. I just want to pray over you about this. So would you pray with me in this moment? God, right now I just come to you and I just pray that you would allow us to hear your voice clearly telling us that we can accomplish what it is that you've called us to do, whether that's sharing the good news of the gospel with other people or whether it's rising up and doing the work that you've placed on our heart. God, give us the courage and the strength to hear you when you clearly communicate to us that we can do what it is that you've asked us to do, what you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, piece of scripture with you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. This is Paul speaking to us, and he says this. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not 
to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. Paul says, look, everybody who feels like they're weak, everybody who feels like they're nothing, everybody who feels like that they're not good enough, he said, God shows you to show to the world not our strength and not our power. God doesn't want people to see us. He wants us to see him. God goes before us. And it's his strength and it's his ability that gives us the confidence to say, we can Here's the bottom line. Most of us are missing out on amazing opportunities, life-changing opportunities because we've bought into the lie that we can't. Here's the truth. This isn't mine. I didn't come up with it. You're probably familiar with it. You've heard it before, but this is a truth that we need to be reminded of. God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. If God's called you to something, he will qualify you to do it. And you've got to start believing that you can. For some of us today, the thing that we've been saying I can't to for far too long is just simply following Jesus. Whether that's accepting him for the first time or whether it means just being obedient to him, we get into this trap of saying that I can't do it. I can't do it. There's something that's holding us back. And I'll tell you, if you, if you want more information about what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. I would love to talk to you about that. You can grab that connection card and you can mark that on there and turn that in on your way out. But I would love to be able to talk to you about what saying I can to Jesus looks like. My big fat mouth often gets me in trouble with what I say. And one of the things that I do is I believe the lie that says that I can't that I'm not good enough, that I'm not qualified enough, that I'm not able to do exactly what it is that God has put on my heart to do. And it's time that I stop believing that lie and start believing the truth that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Jesus Christ, that I can.